evidence and answers. What does this word rapture really mean? I can't find it in the scriptures. Does the Bible speak about this? And what are we to believe? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat is interviewing pastor, author, and Christian apologist, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, as they discuss this event known to Christians as the rapture. Now to discuss this question of can we believe in the rapture is our host, Pat Zucran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, can we still believe in something called the rapture? Is the rapture a biblical teaching or is it a late invention of dispensational teaching? Well, to help us address this issue is one of the top scholars on biblical prophecy, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. Mark Hitchcock completed his PhD at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's an author of over 30 books on Bible prophecy. Any book written by Dr. Mark Hitchcock on prophecy is one you're going to get. One that we're talking about today is one of his newest books, co-authored with Dr. Ed Heinsen of Liberty University. Can we still believe in the rapture? So, Mark, welcome to Evidence and Answers once again. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's great to be with you. Yes. Now, Mark, the controversy when it comes to the rapture, there's another controversy behind that, which is really the interpretation of Revelation. Explain to us a little bit of the controversy behind how scholars have interpreted Revelation. The book of Revelation has been interpreted a lot of different ways. There's several approaches to it. Really, the main issue about the book of Revelation is when will these events be fulfilled? That's really kind of the main issue. The, you know, there's a view that takes it that these events were fulfilled back in A.D. 70, back with the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, most of the book of Revelation's already been fulfilled. Uh, some people would say it's being fulfilled today. Others would say there's really not going to be any concrete fulfillment of these events. It's just kind of spiritual. It's just kind of the cosmic struggle between the church and the world kind of at all times and the symbols that are there that are used. Really, we don't really want to give any concrete meaning to those. And then there's the view that I hold. It's called the futurist view that takes Revelation 4 and following as being events that are still future today. They're about real events, uh, real people, and uh, real persons who will show up. Um, in the future, in the end times. So, you know, when you come to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of different interpretive approaches just to that book itself that, you know, causes people a lot of times to kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, where, where's the truth really to be found in all of this? Yes. Now, the controversy, the way I understand it, is between allegorical interpretation and literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. Is that where the struggle is? Well, that is. It's, that's a big issue. It's, uh, you know, how you're going to interpret this book. I mean, everybody agrees that the book of Revelation is symbolic. But, you know, a lot of people just say, well, the book of Revelation is symbolic, and they just kind of leave it there as if the symbols are just symbols of symbols or kind of they're symbols of nothing. But every symbol in the book of Revelation or these pictures that are there, they all have what we call a literal referent. In other words, they refer to something that's literal. For instance, in chapter 6 of Revelation, you have a rider on a white horse, a rider on a red horse. We don't literally expect that someone will ride out on a white horse or a red horse. What we say is that that is symbolic of something that's literal. 
uh, the rider on the white horse will be this coming world ruler, the Antichrist. The rider on the red horse will be warfare that will break out on the earth during that period of time. So these symbols refer to something that's literal. And what a lot of people don't see, I think, is they, they don't see that these symbols refer to something that's literal. And they just, again, see them as just kind of a symbol of a symbol. But really the problem at that point is is really we can't really make any meaning of the book of Revelation. Other people will say, well, there's a literal referent there, but the literal referent refers to events back in A.D. 70. The problem with that is to be consistent going through the book of Revelation, trying to relate everything in that book back to A.D. 70, to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel and all of that, you run into, I think, a lot of big interpretive problems. So it's not even just so much that we want to interpret the Bible literally, but we want to be consistently literal in our interpretation. And I think the futurist approach to the book is the only one of these approaches that, approaches that can be consistently literal. Yes, let's go over those four schools uh, when it comes to the interpretation of Revelation. We have the idealist, the historicist, the preterist, and the futurist. So uh, right. briefly walk us through that. What First, what is the idealist school? Well, idealists, again, they would say that the book of Revelation, these symbols in the book, don't really have concrete fulfillment in time. It's just this struggle between the church and the world at all times. So basically everything in the book is, uh, every symbol that's given is the church. Uh, for instance, 144,000 in chapter 7, that's the church. The two witnesses in chapter 11, uh, that's the church. The woman in chapter 12, that's the church. And all of these points along, you're just getting different pictures of the church and how the church is being persecuted throughout this entire age. The problem with that, again, is you have to look into the details of each of one of those passages. And I think when you do that, you find out that the 144,000 are not the church. Uh, the two witnesses aren't the church. The woman who's there is not the church either. So I think that's the rub with that view. And it, it just, to me, it fails to give any kind of concrete meaning to these symbols. And when you go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself tells us that the symbols in the book are going, going to have a, a literal reference. They're going to refer to something literal. Because in chapter 1, you see uh, seven lampstands there. You have seven angels of these seven lampstands. Jesus says the seven lampstands in Revelation chapter 1 are the seven churches, and the seven stars he holds in his right hand are the seven angels of those churches. So Jesus himself tells us early on that when you see a symbol in the book, it refers to something that's literal. So I think we should take Jesus' clue there and see these symbols as referring to something that's literal. Yes, now when was the idealist view predominant? Well, I don't really know that it's been predominant other than till recent times. Really, I would say that probably among scholars is the, the predominant view today. You know, again, this kind of symbolic view of the book. But it's kind of come on more in modern times. And that's when that view really has become most popular. Oh, all right. Well, the second view is the historicist view. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, historicism says that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled now that the events are being fulfilled between the first and second coming of Jesus. So it's during this church age that all these prophecies in the book of Revelation are being fulfilled. That view became uh, very popular with the Reformers. A lot of the Reformers, Calvin and Luther and others, were historicists primarily. The problem with the historicist view historically has been that 
they don't agree on the fulfillment of these passages. Everyone kind of in their day sees these things happening in their time. You know, the, the Antichrist is the Pope or the papacy, and that's what Luther saw. And, mm-hmm. you know, Babylon refers to something in your day, and then a hundred years go by, and other people are seeing this being referred in, uh, being uh, fulfilled in their time as referring to other things. So there's really no agreement with people that hold the historicist view about the fulfillment of these. You just kind of tend to look for things in your own day and find fulfillment. Then we have the preterist view. Explain to us the preterist view. Yeah, preterists hold that the book of Revelation was fulfilled around the time of A.D. 70 and the events before that when the Romans, the the Jewish war was taking place between the Romans and the Jewish people there, and then the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in A.D. 70. They see the book of Revelation as being fulfilled in that time period, that, that that's what it's talking about. There's people called partial preterists, and they do at least see a future second coming, literally, of Jesus. But full preterists would say that there's no literal future second coming of Jesus even. So full preterism really, I think, is heretical because it denies even a future literal second coming of Christ. So again, they try to find things in the the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, uh, the seal judgments that were fulfilled back in A.D. 70. But Again, the problem to me with that is when you read the book of Revelation, the judgments there and the things that are being spoken of seem to be global in their scope. They don't seem to be just limited uh, to the land of Israel. And many of those things have not happened. Uh, They didn't happen in A.D. 70. So I think you're having to to force these events into A.D. 70 rather than just allowing the text to speak for itself. Right. Then we have the final one that you mentioned, the futurist view. Explain that one just a little bit. Yeah, the futurist view is that Revelation 4 and following are real people, real events that are still future, that are still future even to our day. So it was written in A.D. 95, the book of Revelation was by John. Everybody agrees that chapters 1 to 3 were written about seven literal churches back in that day that John was writing to. But futurists say, beginning in verse 4, when it begins with the words, after these things, that it's telling us now about things that will unfold during the end times, leading up to the second coming of Jesus, the establishment of his kingdom on earth, and then on, on into eternity. And again, I think to me, if you apply a consistent, literal, hermeneutic, or method of interpretation, I believe that's the view that's most consistent. And, uh, you know, just as the book of Genesis tells us how everything got here, I think the book of Revelation tells us how history will end and uh, tells us it's going to end with the triumphant coming, second coming of Jesus back to the earth uh, to set up his kingdom. And, of course, that coming and those future events are to give us hope at every time in church history that those events could happen at any time, that Jesus could come back and set up his kingdom And now that's to give us hope and comfort in this world in which we live. And certainly we need that hope and comfort now more than any other time. Yes. Now, you briefly stated that John wrote this in 95 A.D. Now, if that is correct, then preterism, which says the book of Revelation is fulfilled in 70 A.D., would be in big trouble. What evidence do you have that John wrote this late in his life at 95 A.D.? Well, one point that's very important is the that's what the early church believed from the earliest times Hegesippus is quoted by Eusebius as saying that Irenaeus who's one of the the luminaries early luminaries in the church of the second century he says that John wrote this book during the reign end of Domitian's reign which the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian ended in AD 96 so 
if Irenaeus is right, and there's no reason to doubt Irenaeus, Irenaeus knew Polycarp who knew John. Right. So you couldn't find a more reliable witness than, than Irenaeus to tell us when the book was written. And he says it's near the, the end of Domitian's reign. So you're right that if Irenaeus and, and all the others in the early church history are correct, that it was written in 95 A.D., then obviously Revelation can't be a prophecy about events in 70 A.D. There's other evidence from within the book as well. Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, was destroyed in an earthquake in uh, A.D. 60, and it took a whole generation to rebuild the city. Uh, by the time you get in the book of Revelation, the city of Laodicea is wealthy and rich and self-sufficient. Uh, that certainly wasn't true in the mid-60s A.D., which is when preterists say the book was written. Um, it took a whole generation to rebuild the city. So that's one evidence I would use. Another one is you know, that John is uh, banished by the emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos, whereas uh, Nero had Peter and Paul killed. So the fact that Peter and Paul were martyred and that John is banished speaks of this happening during a different time period, I think. So there's a lot of internal evidence within the book of Revelation itself that supports the, the 95 day, but also the evidence of church history points to that as well. Yeah, and I think Ephesus is commended in the book of Acts and in Paul's letter, yet in Revelation they've lost their first love. I believe Laodicea also is commended, but then they're lukewarm, so it seems like that's right. not a first-generation church. Right, and we have some writings from Polycarp, from the writings of some of the early early church fathers, from some of Polycarp's writings, that the church of Smyrna didn't even exist during the time of Paul's ministry. Wow. Well, Paul's ministry, you know, ends around 65 A.D., somewhere in there. So there's just a lot of internal clues like that and things that we find. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, to me the problem for preterists is they have to date the book, you know, in the mid-60s for their view to be correct. So they're kind of forced to do that. And I think, again, they're, they're kind of really swimming upstream in the book of Revelation itself and also against church history. Yes. Now, connected with the futurist view, and especially with the rapture, is a theology that we hear about called dispensationalism. Yes. Well, what is that uh, theology, dispensationalism? Well, there's a lot of aspects to it, but I think if we want to boil it down to kind of its simplest form, what dispensationalists believe is we believe that there's a consistent distinction in the Bible between Israel and the church. We believe that the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament, and by Israel I mean the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we believe that those promises are not fulfilled by the church, that those promises will be fulfilled through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's really the, the real um, kind of uh, what's called the sine qua non or the basic distinction between dispensationalism and non-dispensationalism. We believe that Israel and the church are consistently distinct in the Scriptures, whereas others who are non-dispensationalists would say, in the Old Testament, you have Israel, and Israel and the church are the same. And in the New Testament, we have the church, and the church is just the new Israel, that we're fulfilling all of those promises. And so it's, a, it's really a hermeneutical method, in many ways a method of interpretation. We say, look, when God made promises to Abraham and his descendants, he meant that literally. It will literally be fulfilled with them. Israel has not been subsumed somehow in the church or been replaced by the church. Yes, and why should we separate Israel and the church? Well, I think the reason we do that is, again, you go back and read in the Old Testament, God made promises to Abraham and to his descendants. 
Um, you know, he said, your descendants, you know, your seed. And God promised to give them a land. And he gave them the perimeters of that land or the, the boundaries of that land. And said, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants forever. And uh, we believe that when he promised that to Abraham and his descendants, he means his literal descendants. It's repeated that promise is to Isaac. It's repeated ultimately to Jacob and to the 12 tribes of Israel. So we believe that God has promised to give a specific land to a specific people. And to come later and kind of shoehorn the church back into the promises to Abraham, I believe is changing the meaning of those promises to Abraham. God made promises to David. He made a promise to David that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne and rule over David's kingdom forever. Now, we all agree that that greater descendant of David is the Lord Jesus, but other people will say, well, the kingdom that Jesus is ruling over now is the church. But God told David he's going to rule, sit on your throne, David, the Davidic throne, and he's going to rule over your kingdom. David's kingdom was Israel. So I think to expand that and to say, well, no, now the kingdom is the church, is changing the meaning of the promise that God gave to David. And so I think we have to be careful that we're not changing the meaning of the promises God made to Abraham, God made to David, and to others. Yeah, now Mark, some will say, well, when Israel rejected the Messiah, the deal's off. Right. Yeah, how, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, you still have the promises repeated even after that period of time. You know, in, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is stating to his disciples, you know, that uh, um, teaching them all about the kingdom of God. It says for 40 days, Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And at the end of that time period, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you'll be my witnesses and so on. Well, in other words, they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Because that's what they believed. Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. They believed the kingdom would be restored to Israel. And they said, is it this time you're going to do that? And that would have been the perfect place for Jesus to have corrected their wrong theology and said, look, there isn't going to be a kingdom for Israel. But he doesn't say that. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So Jesus there leaves in place this idea that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. You have, you know, statements in where Jesus tells the 12 apostles, his 12 apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, to me, the only way they could have understood that was we're going to sit on 12 literal thrones on the earth judging over uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus reiterates these promises himself later on. You know, I think, again, we have warrant even in the New Testament for taking these promises literally that were made in the Old Testament. Yes, yeah, so I think also another hallmark of dispensationalism has been the literal interpretation of the Bible, uh, not only from Genesis, but I think consistently all the way through the book of Revelation. Well, that's right. If you start off, you know, taking the Bible literally in Genesis and say we have a literal man and a woman in a literal garden, then to me, when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, we have a literal city there uh, that's kind of pictured like the Garden of Eden. I mean, the history ends in kind of this temple city, if you will, the, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. So if you want to take the beginning of Genesis literally, you have to take the end of Revelation literally as well. I think it all holds together with this same method of interpretation. I think to me, you make the, the Bible, it makes sense, and you have the Bible as a complete story that way. Yes. Now, Mark, why has there been such a controversy over this theology of dispensationalism? I know when I'm on the golf course or something with you know my brothers in Christ, and they find out I, I went to Dallas or 
I hold to this view of dispensationalism, man, I get a pretty strong reaction. You know, like it's a heretical or something. Why is there such a strong yeah. reaction among some, you know, against dispensationalism? Well, I mean, you know, I can't speak for everybody who doesn't like it, but I think some of the, I think some of it is people don't understand it. Yeah, I, um, think, so. I think you know, there's a lot of times when people hear a w- certain word, and that word has been kind of infused with a lot of meaning, and so when someone you know says to me, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a dispensationalist, or I don't like dispensationalism, I always ask them, well, what do you understand dispensationalism to mean? Because I think sometimes they don't even know what it is. You know, it's just something they've they've heard about. So. That's a first thing I think to consider. One thing is some people believe that dispensationalists teach that people are saved different ways throughout history. You know, that dispensationalists teach that, you know, salvation was by works in the Old Testament and now it's by grace through faith and so there's different means of salvation. That's not what dispensationalists believe. We believe that people have always been saved by God's grace through faith and the promises of God. So some believe that. Others think, too, that we chop the Bible up you know, into, into pieces. You've got all these different dispensations, and you know, it's kind of chopping the Bible up into pieces. What's interesting, if you read Calvin's Institutes, Calvin talks about the old dispensation or the dispensation of law and talks about you know, now is this dispensation of grace. So you know, dispensationalists aren't the only ones who use those terms. Obviously, whether someone's a dispensationalist or not, they're going to agree that before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, things were different than they are now. We wear clothes now, you know, and right. we eat pork and different kinds of food. So, yeah, if you just look at things practically, we live differently than people did at other times. So in some senses, people are recognizing by that that there's been a change. But again, going back to the main thought of dispensationalists, all we're saying is is that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. I think, you know, a lot of people, too, a lot of anti-dispensationalist ideas have almost come out of an anti-Semitism as well. You know, they think Uh the Jewish people killed the Messiah, God's finished with them, you know, they're going to be punished now forever because of that, and, you know, that God has no future for them. So I think that uh, it comes out of a lot of wrong ideas, I think, but I think I believe if you take the Bible consistently, literally, that a dispensationalist approach is where you're going to end up. Right. Now, Mark, many say that the literal interpretation of Revelation is a recent trend in the church. Or, you know, it's, hope people don't get too confused, we're throwing out a lot of terms here, but the futurist or premillennial interpretation, literal interpretation of Revelation, of a literal 144,000, of a third of the seas turning to blood, stars falling from the sky, all of that. It, it's a recent trend. Uh, it wasn't interpreted that way in church history. It's just a recent trend. Is that correct? No, it's not, actually. I mean, you go back and read some of the earliest writers. You know, again, I mentioned a man named Irenaeus. Or Irenaeus. I mean, he lived in the second century, so around 180, 160 to 180 A.D., so, you know, 60 or 80 years after the book of Revelation was written. And if you go and read Irenaeus, Irenaeus sounds like a modern dispensational prophecy teacher. Um, He believed in a future literal antichrist. He believed he would reign, uh, rule the earth for three and a half years. He believed a temple would be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. Um, He believed in a a time of tribulation that was coming on the earth, a literal second coming of Jesus, followed by a 1,000-year literal reign of Jesus on the earth. That's what you can go read in Book 5 of 
the writings of Irenaeus in, in his book Against Heresies. And that's what he says. I mean, that's what I believe. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call. That number locally in Hawaii is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>